Good morning, everybody. Today's session uh, on public law principles, insofar as they uh, are important for adult social care, um, it's about acting fairly, the rules of natural justice, or in more modern language, the rules of procedural fairness. And there's two parts to this area of public law. The first part is looking at the um, means by which the person is helped to engage with the decision that is in play. So we're looking today at full information, sometimes in advance and in accessible format, and also at the concepts of participation, involvement and consultation. And the cases we're going to look at, which I hope will raise a smile, um, are the KK case from many years ago, Wandsworth, and then from many years ago, Croydon, but interestingly, a more recent Croydon case too. And to my mind, that that, sh that shows that one needs the message about public law principles constantly refreshing, because as there is churn in the staff and social work colleges are no better at teaching public law principles now than they ever were, each generation of new staff coming into the sector needs to be taught about these principles. So what are the fundamentals of the rules of fairness in public law decision making, wherever a local government or a central government body is making a decision? Well, it's the law that any decision that is an administrative decision under a statute or a quasi-judicial decision about whether something or other is the situation or not, is something appropriate, is something necessary, is something sufficient, is a person in need, do they have significant impact, etc. That kind of decision, the law is that that must be done fairly. And that breaks down into two fundamental principles. The first is that the decision maker must properly hear the other side. And that means in detail that the decision maker mustn't be affected by bias or even appear to be affected by bias. And that includes having decided in advance what the decision is going to be, like a whole tranche of social workers going out and saying, I'm afraid there's got to be cuts. We've been told there's got to be cuts. That is a risky thing for social workers to say. Also, if one is um, motivated by an improper purpose in terms of what the statute is supposed to be about, but you've got another motivation in mind, then that can make the um, process that you go through procedurally unfair. And the second thing that decision makers have to do is abide by any laws or regulations or simple common law principles, public law principles, or legitimate expectations arising from promises that they didn't have to make, but which they did make, as to all of these aspects that underpin fairness. So advance notice of what it is that is going to be the subject of a meeting. Consultation in advance of certain decisions. Involvement whilst they are happening and supported decision-making rights such as advocacy. 
a fair opportunity to address the issues that are on the mind of the decision maker and later reasons for the decision. So those are the two fundamental parameters of the rules of procedural fairness. And let me spell it out as to what I mean by this. If it says somewhere that X, Y or Z must be done by way of due process in any statute or regulations, then the courts can quash any decisions. That means get rid of the decisions that come out of scenarios where the X or the Y or the Z did not in fact happen. So they have to start again. They can come to the same substantive outcome, but they have to do it lawfully by way of process. And the bottom line is that even when a council or for some of us, an ICB, an integrated commissioning board, isn't bound by any particular procedure in a statute, it must still take account of the gravity of the decision for the person and act fairly in terms of proportionality for that situation. So the basic premise is the more significant the decision is for the person, the more irrevocable it is, the more meaningful it is to their uh, private and physical autonomy and integrity, then the more fairness is required. That's an easy principle to remember really, because it kind of sounds morally right. The telling thing, though, that if there is a dispute about how much fairness is needed in any given situation, it's the judge and not the decision maker, not the council or the ICB, who has the right to say what fairness required in that specific situation. And judges follow the rules of precedent. And they understand that if you take, for instance, a very busy area of decision making like adult social care and you overjudicialized it in terms of how much fairness was required, then it would grind to a halt. So they're not stupid. They understand that there is a kind of um, ebbing and flowing of how much fairness any particular field of local government endeavor can actually stand. And that's why, although those principles are there, you need to know about the nuance of the case law to be able to predict how much fairness in a given situation is required. The CARE Act is full of less hard-edged types of procedural right, and they're described as participation, consultation, and involvement. And to an ordinary person, I guess, the word participating might well connote someone's being physically there, contributing to face-to-face -face decision making. But that's not necessarily the case. In the legal sense, it just means participating in some shape or form and not physical presence. Being consulted under a right to be consulted doesn't connote being there either but it does mean something a bit meatier. It means being talked to in such a way as to have a chance to influence the outcome. And it's not only under the Mental Capacity Act that it's necessary. It's part of due process. It's part of equality, um, impact assessments, etc. And it can be part of the law, even where it's not specifically mentioned in statutes.
And the way that that has kind of translated into easy, rememberable, me memorable stuff is we have now things like um, nothing about us without us, or we have um, references to making safeguarding personal. We have the whole area of personalization in and of itself, in fact. Involvement, which is also mentioned in some legislation, means something less or even vaguer than all of the other concepts, though. It's a very woolly concept, and it enables councils who are in charge of process to say that they're involving someone without telling them very much at all. Consultation has to be at an influential formative stage. Involvement could mean later on in a process, closer to the actual decision, the axe having fallen, the actual decision having been made. And being involved in something does not connote being shown actual documents about other people. So if you're somebody's loved one, but without any special authority like a power of attorney, and you want a copy of a document so that you can be properly involved in their care planning revision, for instance, as an outsider, you have to be able to point to a duty in the CARE Act or a reason for the holder of the information to share it with you, despite confidentiality and the blessed GDPR. And that's why you find in the National Framework for Continuing Healthcare reference to best interests for sharing prior paperwork. And now we come to the juicy case law. So we're starting off with a case uh, in 2010, and the link is there. And Croydon was, uh, you don't need to read it all through, I'll just tell you about it. Croydon was a case where a bloke had been looked after by the care provider called Hesley for £4,800 a week at one of those lovely, um, glorious mansion-type care homes with fields and um lovely gardens and lots of space all around. Um, that's not fashionable these days. CQC uh, refers to that model of care as being outdated and not likely to support anybody's independence. But uh, there's an agenda there, isn't there? Anyway, Croydon decided that this man should move into an urban setting in supported living. And they convinced themselves that Hesley was actually not um, suitable for the claimant any longer because it wasn't encouraging his independence. And he was, quote, restricted and isolated in this fantastic establishment with all of these lovely extra aspects of care. So they did the reassessments without involving the parents and then polled the parents that he had been reassessed. And they came to a meeting that they were invited to where they were told that he would be moving um, or that uh, he would be moving in the future. And they didn't object to the principle of his moving, but they said, where is the detail of what you would be taking him to? And in fact, why haven't you consulted with us at the stage of reassessment. And why isn't Hesley here to stand up for themselves, given that you're bad-mouthing them? So uh, they brought a legal challenge, and they won. And the termination decision, the contract termination decision for those commissioners in the audience, was quashed. 
And I've put in highlight there that that doesn't mean that the man is still there or was never moved. It means that the council had to go back and do a proper process. And the process came from the community care legislation in force at the time, even though as far as the commissioner was concerned, the commissioner's uh, field of uh, expertise was contract and procurement law. And I think what's so interesting to people is that even before the CARE Act, we had stuff in place going back to 2004 that required involvement of people's nearest and dearest. So in the community care assessment directions, there was a requirement for um, carers to be involved. It didn't mean Hesley Villagers paid carers, but it meant people who counted as carers, even though this chap was in a care home. And now, all those years later, this part of the case law has been injected into the Care Act because, as you will know, there are specific duties to involve carers in the Care Act. He also referred to the guidance, and it's the same guidance that was in force then in terms of the legal authority for it, as we now have under the Care Act, although that's all been modernised in terms of content. And that guidance says local authorities must act under the guidance. And it's said in the guidance that the assessment should involve a full discussion with close family members and take into account their views about the person's needs. So none of this is new and none of this doesn't apply to CHC care planning. I can't believe that I said something so ungrammatical as none of this doesn't apply. But what I wanted to convey is that these are public law principles, even if they are not written down in specific regulations or directions, because one finds that one operates, even if one doesn't know it, under guidance or directions. In this particular scenario, the parents were uh, given very little information in advance, just invited to a tea party, really, to talk about their son. And uh, they made it very clear that he was very happy where he was and that uh, they hadn't been told of any other suitable alternatives. Ultimately, the mother said she would fight the idea of her son living in the community because she didn't think it was in his best interests. So even before um, uh, um, the Mental Capacity Act came in, there was always something um, in the legal framework itself which was public law principles that gave people the opportunity to uh, talk like this. The judge's view when the council said, well, we didn't close our minds, we had them to tea, and we still did suggest that there was, um, you know, not, not a decision taken as yet. We only decided after the meeting that we would terminate the contract. The judge's view was that the judge believed the local authority that they had an open mind, but it was so near to being shut that the judge went on to say at the bottom of the page, the consultation was inadequate and breached the requirements to which I've, re I've referred. The council knew that the question of the claimant staying at Hesley Village would be an important one, 
And although the parents may have known that there were some concerns, there was nothing, even as late as July, to alert them to quite how far down the road the council's thinking had got in relation to the lack of suitability and cost of maintaining the placement. They had not been involved in the earlier assessments of their son's needs. The judge then referred to the Mental Capacity Act, which was in force then. It is of particular importance because Section 1.5 provides as to what a lawful decision must uh, be put through before it is legal. And then in Section 4, the determination of best interests involve in subsection 6 and 7 these duties. The decision maker must consider as far as is reasonably ascertainable the person's past and present wishes and feelings, the other factors he would be likely to consider if he were able to do so. And he must take into account if it is practicable and appropriate to consult the views of, and this is the important part for providers, anyone engaged in caring for the person or interested in his welfare as to what would be in the person's best interests. And the judge said this, the parents were not consulted about the assessment until, as I shall come to, a meeting in late July. And the assessment was not shown to Hesley until after the decision had been taken to move the claimant. This lack of involvement could only have been made good if there was an opportunity for that document to be thoroughly discussed and those discussions considered before decisions were taken. Effectively, it wasn't done soon enough and um, the council uh, was not keeping an open mind into August of 2010. Ultimately, the judge uh, ended up saying, of course, Hesley Village could be regarded as an interested party, commercially interested, but the provisions of Section 4 of the Mental Capacity Act and of the guidance under it make it clear that their views would be valuable. So ultimately, the rubric of being interested in a person's welfare lets even commercially conflicted providers who are under a cloud into best interests consultation. And if it's not done properly, then the decision to terminate can be quashed. This next case is an even older one involving Wandsworth, and it was an, another case involving a very doughty daughter. There was an elderly lady called Mrs. Goldsmith in this case who had been in an expensive residential care home for many years. And then she went into hospital after a fall. I'm not suggesting that anybody actually pushed her, but it was an opportunity for the local authority to consider whether it was right for them to have her go back to her very expensive residential care home. And it was uh, the decision of people, the professionals in that case, that she should go now to a nursing home. And her daughter basically argued extremely determinedly that that was not right, it was not fair, and it was not proper because of the impact on Mrs. Goldsmith of moving her at that late stage in her life, when, after all, there is no real 
regulatory distinction between what can be done in a residential care home and what can be done in a nursing care home. She won her case, not because of that debate, not because the idea was that she could just have residential care in her residential care home, even if she needed more nursing, but because the decision had not been made fairly, her daughter and she had been prevented from informing the panel in Wandsworth well before the Mental Capacity Act, please note, um, of uh, the impact that would be sustained. And the daughter had made written representations, but she'd also asked to attend the panel. Now, can you imagine if the idea that you could attend a panel hearing as a member of the public had been picked up and run with because any lawyers in this era had been interested in fairness, then we might have a very different looking adult social care system. The judge ended up saying that the daughter had a manifest contribution to make and that on this occasion, she needed to be admitted to the panel. Nobody is saying that that is true for all cases for all time. But in this case, the judge used common law principles of fairness to say that, in fact, the daughter had such a lot to say that she should have been able to do more than make written representations to the panel. And the judge went on to say um, the uh, panel was discussing the needs it was manifestly a matter on which the daughter had a contribution to make. Um, and the council's contention that the matters being discussed were purely clinical there um, was regarded as rubbish. And the judge said, um, this is a, a case about due process. The process here has been manifestly defective. And he even brought in human rights in terms of uh, her Article 8 rights. The judge said any interference by the state with her right to respect for her private life must be proportionate. There is no evidence in my judgment that Wandsworth gave any consideration to the principle of proportionality at all. There is no point in the meeting uh, uh, where there's any evidence that Mr. Kelly or any other Wandsworth decision maker had addressed his mind to Article 8 itself or to the proportionality of Wandsworth's response. That's the same Mr. Kelly who ended up in the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea and whose evidence then in the Elaine MacDonald case uh, went the other way and meant that Kensington and Chelsea won that case. The judge went on to say there was um, a failure of communication and uh, an absence of any suggestion that Wandsworth had addressed the Article 8 rights. I'm not going to go on with that slide, but it says more about human rights because there's a much more modern case where the, the need to be straight if you are a local authority or a CHC care planner, the need to be absolutely straight comes out beautifully. This is a case where I want you to imagine an elderly lady shaking a stick at the state. This was a lady who had been being cared for in her own home and she had deteriorated. 
and she got to the stage where she was using the helpline telephone number for her alarm, really for somebody just to have a chat with. And that was happening 30 or 40 times a day. And social services was involved and they placed her in a care home and put her under a doll's without doing more than a cursory capacity and best interests examination. In the days when dolls was even being done, mind you, halfway properly. So this lady didn't just sit there and take it. This lady was sufficiently voluble and fluent and articulate still, even if she had less than full capacity, to get a lawyer involved and challenge the case based on the idea that she wasn't, in fact, incapacitated. All she wanted to do was to be at home. And implicitly, she deserved a care package in her own home. But more importantly than that, she had not been treated procedurally fairly. And the judge decided that the person who is being assessed for mental capacity must be presented with detailed options, truthful ones, legal ones, so that their capacity to weigh up those options can be fairly assessed. In this case, the judge said the council had not identified a complete package of support that would or might be available should she return home. And because they haven't done that, she doesn't know what the consequences of saying no to residential care would be. And this has undermined the expert's assessment of her capacity. The statute requires, that's the MCA, it must be shown that all practicable steps have been taken to help the subject of the decision make an informed decision. Each person must be given the relevant information including what the likely consequences of a decision would be, the effects of deciding one way or the other. So to do that, the council or the any other commissioner needs to identify the best ways in which um, the options would be supported. And in order to understand the consequences, the lady in this case needed to be given, wait for it, the full details of the care package that would or might be available. The choice which this lady should be asked to weigh up is not between the nursing home on the one hand and a return to the bungalow with no or limited support, but rather between staying in the nursing home and a return home with, quote, all practicable support. I am not satisfied that KK was given full details of all practicable support that would or might be available should she return home to her bungalow. Now, the effect of this in the Court of Protection was um, the council had to trial Mrs. KK back at home. And if they had been a bad authority, they would have set her up to fail, but they didn't. They gave her a proper sized care package that would meet more than the needs that would be met in the nursing home because it was a different environment. She may have had Toby jugs all over the floor or rugs that were full of holes in them. The point was the local authority had to care plan for what 
care in the real environment that they were trialing her in would cost. And of course, when she got home, people were celebrating her arrival home. So she wasn't lonely any longer. I have a vision that people were sticking shepherd's pies through the door within, you know, 14 days of her getting getting home. So the point is she didn't fail. She didn't go back to using her alarm helpline 40, de- 40 times a day in order uh, to be friendly to people. And so this this case, KK, is actually the answer, although it's not a judicial review case, it's the answer to every local authority and every ICB that thinks it can cost cap a care package to the equivalent cost of a residential or a nursing home bed. The argument is often that if the person chooses to go back home again, for which, of course, they'd have to have mental capacity because you couldn't let them choose if they weren't capacitated, the argument runs that if they choose to go back home, they can't have more than the cost of residential or nursing home care. The KK KK case shows that, in fact, it's not the person who's got to make the choice. It's the local authority that's got to make the choice. And if it makes a choice that the only offer is going to be a care home, which would be accurate for some people and appropriate, and nothing else would be therapeutically possible, then the local authority can wait for the person to say, no, thank you. And then the local authority can walk away. But if the person says, no, I really don't want to be there, then the local authority, in toddling after the person and saying, please, please let us offer you something so that we can all feel better about ourselves, then it is the local authority that's making the choice not to walk away, and then they must still act appropriately under the CARE Act. And if they do that, of course, they have to make an offer that is defensible and they have to make an offer of an appropriately sufficient amount for the environment in which their professional staff now know the individual is going to stay. And that is why no local authority and no ICB will allow itself to be taken to court on the principle of cost capping in an individual case. Too much is at stake if that is declared to be unlawful, in my respectful view. Croydon managed uh, 10 years after the original case to get judicially reviewed again on precisely the same grounds in a modern version of this story. This time, the uh, person was a young woman who had had a budget of 35 hours a week when she was at residential college. And when she ceased to be at residential college and came home, her family got her reviewed on the footing that although they were prepared to carry on doing lots for her, she was now in a fundamentally different situation. And the uh, local authority said, nope, we're only going to give her 35 hours a week. And then to top it off, only paid for 30. So the father in that case brought judicial review proceedings on behalf of his daughter. And the argument was about involvement. 
the family had been involved in the assessment process, which had worked out that if they didn't exist, this woman would need 96 hours a week of care. But because they did exist, the council was only going to provide 35. And you don't have to be too bright to figure out that the council was assuming that the family would simply put up and shut up and meet the shortfall themselves. The judge said although the family was involved in the assessment, they were not at all involved in the care planning. And that was unlawful. Croydon even admitted that it was unlawful, but then had the temerity to say it wouldn't have made any difference because we were so far apart as between 35 and 96 that we would never have arrived at an agreement. But the bottom line was the judge said that is not a legitimate position to take. The judge said that there is no good reason for refusing to grant the relief that the court provides by way of a remedy in judicial review. First of all, the judge said there's no material that supports the council's contention that it would have made the same decisions even if it had involved the claimant and her family in setting the personal budget and formulating the plan. And the argument sits very uneasily with the uh, council's other position that all they had to do was to offer her a new reassessment. The judge said there was nothing wrong with the assessment. The assessment of her needs was perfect, but the actual identification of what would be the real shortfall after one had factored some of the parents' input back in again, that was the imperfect bit. The judge said that uh, it didn't matter that there was no prospect of agreement. What mattered was that the individual had the support of the people with a legal right to be involved. And that, the judge said, was what had not been offered by Croydon. And so the Modern Care Act takes all of this previous care, uh, previous case law and turns it into provisions in the Act or provisions in the regulations or exhortations in the guidance. And that, if you remember, is because public law rules. You can't make a new statute and ignore human rights without specifically admitting it, even if you're the government. You can't write the guidance to override the case law, and the guidance has to be in line with the Care Act. So Section 1.3 provides for the obligation of the council to have regard to this most important principle. The individual's participation as fully as possible in decisions relating to the exercise of the function concerned and being provided with the information and support necessary to enable the individual to participate. There is even a requirement that advance notice of the assessment should be given in an accessible format. So these are slides that come from the guidance. It says in the guidance that the preferences of the individual with regard, never mind the care, but with regard to the timing, location and the medium of the assessment itself should be uh, taken on board. There are provisions in the guidance about the person 
being at the heart of the assessment, but also the duty, because it says must, to involve any carer that the person has. And ultimately, that's a local authority aspect of professionalism. In section 9.5, there's a legal duty to involve the adult and any carer that the adult has in the actual assessment of needs. And ultimately, there's guidance about how carers must be involved in the planning process, because if you're going to rely on them for 61 hours a week, as Croydon had done, it is kind of sensible to point that out to them and have them explode and say, hell no, we won't go that far. That is the law. The guidance says the carer's willingness to provide the care and the extent of this in the plan should also be recorded. All of these principles that we have come from administrative law. And it is that same body of administrative law that affects the NHS in the context of um, care, uh, in, in the context of CHC care planning. And NHS bodies can be as easily judicially reviewed as can local authorities, but only if people uh, know the law and use it. The CARE Act goes on with specific involvement rules for care plans. And again, it is without regard to um, the consent of the adult. If there is a carer in the mix, the carer has to be involved. So I think that that is really important, whereas that's not the same for a support planning process for a carer. And then ultimately, in terms of revision, there is a duty of involvement as well. And um, we're not studying advocacy, but wherever there is a duty of involvement in the CARE Act, there is also a, 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 an arguable uh, entitlement to a funded CARE Act advocate. So when you see that little word, involve, yes, it's very vague, but it triggers the perhaps more valuable right to funded independent advocacy. The last slide before I finish and open up the floor is uh, about the accessible information standard. Um, I'm not a discrimination lawyer, but um, I am pleased to say that even in the CARE Act guidance, there is an incorporation of the accessible information standard that applies in England. And it is um, all part of turning the Equality Act into real obligations uh, for members um, of local authorities and officers there. So that's the end of the material. And what I would like to do now is to, um, uh, I'll stop the share and I will look to see whether anybody would like to ask a question. Anybody now in the session can unmute and then um, I believe you will be able to, um, your, your, your uh, camera will come on and I will see if you're um, interested in asking a question. Is there anybody who would like to ask a question specifically about procedural fairness, since that is the subject matter for today? I can only see about 12 of you, but there are 25 people in the session. So um, if uh, anybody would like to put up their hand, that would be fine with me. There is one message in the chat. 
I'll just check that one. There is a question in the chat that might get you going. It's a question from Megan, and it's, does an end of a contract for a provider with a local council necessitate the removal of all clients immediately just because the provider doesn't agree with the way the council wants to change the way they support and that they want in-house services only? So that's a difficult question, Megan. Um, it's not about fairness. It's about what a contract, a specific contract says. If you're talking about um, a council deciding to decommission a whole provider on the footing that from now on in the local authority is going to provide services in-house only, then that kind of decommissioning is something that raises the question, what then is the duty owed to the individuals who have been um, having the care of that provider? You might be talking about daycare services or a care home, or um, it's unlikely to be a care home, but it may well be um, a domiciliary care service where a local authority is setting up its own. The law is that decommissioning is not the same as the provider withdrawing. Decommissioning is about a strategic decision taken by a commissioner who may therefore, in a public body, owe a duty under the public service, public sector equality duty to consult in advance of the decision to decommission. And it, there are lawyers such as Erwin Mitchell who regularly fight consultation cases where the issue in question is about closing something or about effectively decommissioning it, which may well be the same as closing the business because the business won't have any customers. So the law of consultation in that case is different from the law as to what must happen to the people who were in the service. The local authority cannot be obliged to continue to commission with a provider that it does not want to commission from. But the individuals have Care Act rights. And for their care plans to be changed requires due process. So if a local authority had consulted properly in advance, the relatives of the individuals would know that something was afoot. And that's when they would have started to say, well, when are you going to do an up-to-date reassessment of my loved one's needs so that you can properly figure out what sort of a new service and whether your in-house service could possibly be suitable? So um, it may be too late to do anything about it, but I'm hoping that that answer is of some use to you. You can come back to me in a minute, but I can see a couple of other questions coming in now. And Mina's hand is up. I'm going to deal with the one from Liana online first. It says this. Sorry, Mina, I will come back to you. The Croydon case law highlights procedure being followed Section 25.3, involving a carer in support planning. So Liana's question is this. If the person supported has capacity to make a decision 
on involvement and asks that the carer isn't involved or contacted by the local authority, where does the local authority stand? And the answer to that is that it is not clear. The Care Act says that the carer must be involved regardless of consent. I equally fully accept that a capacitated person may have every reason to say, thank you for telling me that you're going to reassess me, but I don't want my parent or my spouse or anybody else involved. And then the local authority is between a rock and a hard place. Do they take the capacitated refusal of consent to involvement or do they say to the person, I'm afraid the Care Act says that this person must be involved, even though you're fully capacitated, but we're the decision makers about what involvement will involve. So how about we promise you not to give any paperwork to your relatives, but just to give you uh, just to give your uh, your family members um, a heads up as to what is happening when you and we have done all of the work together. If I could come to Mina's question now, Mina, can you unmute? I think that you're able to. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask your opinion about procedural fairness. Uh, my son was, uh, he had a care assessment and then the local authority carried out a new care assessment without informing me that it uh, was going to do it, and then a new care plan, etc., etc., etc. Can you point me in <laughs> to the case law, to the law which says that they had um, a, a duty. right to do a duty? Yes, I, I've. I've pointed you to the case law in the slides. It's the duty in section nine five of the Care Act to involve the carer. So but, uh, I'm no longer. Uh... It doesn't matter if your son is in supported living or if your son is in a care home. You can still count as a carer, even though you're only providing practical or emotional support. Great. Okay. And that's the key thing. A light bulb moment, Mina. There you Yay. go. So you need to go back to the local authority and say, fascinated to hear that my son has had another assessment and a new care plan. But unless you're going to tell me that he said I couldn't be involved, I had a statutory right to be involved because I'm still involved in his life and I'm still providing practical and emotional support. And section section 9.5 and section 27 says that I should have been involved. Thank you. You're very welcome. That's really lovely. I'm glad to be of service there. Okay, so um, 
Uh, Megan has come back with another question, but Megan, I can't provide legal advice on uh, this sort of a session. So what I would say is if you have um, a provider problem or if you have a um, uh, an individual problem, then you need to look at the Cascader website and either make a referral or send me an email. Because obviously we have to make a living. And much as I could like to talk for England, we have to be uh, paid uh, sooner or later by somebody for the advice that we provide. Um, the last um, question uh, that uh, I simply wanted to address is what are we going to do next week? And next week, we're going to be looking at part two of fairness, which is all about the duty to give reasons and to engage with members of the public when they say, we get what you're saying. We get that you're the decision maker, but we can't understand how you've arrived at that conclusion. Okay. All right, then. Thank you very much indeed. See you next week. Cheers. Bye.